0: Welcome to season six of Camille's Demi Hour. I am your host, Camille Broderick, and this is Nantucket's NPR station, 89.5 WNCK. This is a half-hour show dedicated to the Epicurean world here on Nantucket and beyond. On the show, I interview guests who will share their inspiring and thoughtful perspectives and how they are leading the charge in the ever-changing landscape of food, wine, agriculture, and hospitality. I hope this show broadens your view of this great world we live in and helps you to engage with your community and support your neighbor. Cheers and welcome to the table. Thank you all for joining us today and welcome to Camille's Demi Hour on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station. A common topic in the wine industry these days is beginning to revolve around Napa. Where is the wine industry heading in Napa? What else does Napa have to offer besides big, powerful cabs and lush chardonnays? As world-class as they are, the costs aren’t always approachable for young drinkers, nor their rich and often high alcohol profiles always appealing. I am always on the hunt for new wines, but specifically in Napa, where a new style or a unique grape varietal invites a tasting revelation. Today, we have a great winemaker on the show, Dan Petrosky a man of talent and determination who leads one of the oldest and most reputable wineries in Napa, but someone who also, no doubt, has followed his heart and palate to create an array of great award-winning wines, both in a cult style of Napa, but also in a new Mediterranean style inspired by Frioli, surprisingly. Let's hear his story. Welcome, Dan, to the show.
1: Oh, thank you, Camille. Excited to be here and chat with you a little bit.
0: Oh, me too. Oh, me too.
1: I wish we were doing this in person, but unfortunately, you know, during this time of COVID, we are uh, still uh, we are still talking through telephones and Zoom I know. Uh, virtual tastings. Not
0: only do I wish chat. we were in front of each other, I wish we had your wines and we were drinking them together <laughs> <laughs> together, too. Well,
1: it's something to look forward to but thank you again for having me it's a very um very uh, great introduction i appreciate that I'm very honored
0: oh thank you it's my pleasure so you are one of these winemakers that found his way into the wine world and winemaking world after having a totally different career everyone loves the business corporate man turned winemaker let's let's hear your story how did it happen
1: um, <laughs> yeah, I was very, I was very fortunate. Um, but some people can, you know, laugh when I say this, but, um, when I was about 33 years old and living and working in New York city having I spent 10 years, uh, in time Inc magazine publishers with, uh, two stints at, uh, sports illustrated and time magazine, I had a bit of a midlife crisis and I kind of yearned for some of the things that I appreciated in life. And, um, and one of them was, I had some regrets of never being able to, study abroad when I was in college and um, and kind of spend time living in another country and learning another language. Um, I grew up as an Italian American in Brooklyn, New York, and I, I had multiple visits. Yeah. <laughs> <She> <laughs> I have multiple do that for visits for some reason I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> multiple travels and and visits to, to to Europe and Italy specifically. I always said that I could spend the rest of my life traveling through Italy and be satisfied. And um, so when I was 33 um, ten years into my career timing i had an opportunity to leave that company and go work for another publication um, which everyone knows the wall street journal but i decided if i was going to leave this place that i called home i was going to go for good and um i i chose to uh... pick up and and move to italy and i i lived in the south of italy and sicily for a year i had the good fortune of um uh, having a relationship with uh... Italian family that owned a winery and a vineyard, and they kind of took me under their wing for an apprenticeship, where I went and visited with them and spent like three days a week, you know, traveling to the vineyards and and uh, learning a little bit more about um, what they were doing, why they were doing it, and their history. and And I spent a year, you know, doing that, coupled with travel throughout Italy and and Europe, before returning to the United States. And when I returned to the states, I didn't expect to get into winemaking. My goal was to take my previous corporate career, you know, everything from having an MBA to uh, running sales, and marketing, finance departments, um, and then taking this experience of living and working, and this new kind, newfound kind of uh, Italian language ability, I was going to um, try to find a job in in, in wine in New York City. The one thing you know about Italians for sure is that there's a, there's a tremendous amount of pride. And it's not even Italian pride; it's regional pride. It's you know that's why it's so fascinating if you think about the Italian wine industry and the grapes that they grow in the 20 different uh, recognized grape-growing regions. They're all unique to themselves. Mm. There's not a lot of they don't cross borders. Um, you know you don't you don't grow Sangiovese in Tuscany and in Piemonte or Sicily. You don't grow you don't, Nebbiolo in Piemonte and and Friuli. So it's a very fascinating. Um, regional, you know, sense of pride. And Sicily has a great history in, in, in wine, grape growing, and it's been, you know, kind of formed, the south of Italy has been formed, you know, by the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans. I always tell people I didn't learn how to make wine or grow grapes when I lived in Italy. I learned how to appreciate wine, learned how to appreciate wine drinking culture, which led me to, once I was, got my feet under me in, in Napa Valley, which led me to starting Moffican as a winery. And we can get to that in a minute, but uh
0: that's funny. I actually cooked in southern France for a little while, and I didn't learn how to cook, I say. I learned how to work <laughs> in a kitchen. I learned how to appreciate making good food. It, it wasn't about techniques per se. It was... So you came back to the U.S., um, and then you ended up getting crashed on a few couches, right? And then maybe <laughs> got your first internship with a man named Andy Smith, who sort of changed your trajectory.
1: Yeah, I was um, I was very lucky at the time. It was you know, I always say that a big part of my career in California has been the right place at the right time, with also a lot of hard work that went into it. I think, um, you know, opportunities present themselves when you work hard. And Andy took a liking to me, took an opportunity to have me kind of do an internship at Dumal, which is a, a Sonoma County a Pinot Noir and Chardonnay producer. Beautiful, beautiful wines. You know, they were there in the late '90s, coming out of the you know in the early 2000s as one of the kind of pioneers. Uh, of Sonoma County Wines and and Andy was also very well versed in Napa Valley where he started his career and he was the consulting winemaker at Larkmead Vineyards where he hired me part-time there during the harvest to help out. And after the harvest, you know, which, you know, lasted about four four plus months, he asked me if I would be willing to stay on full-time in the position uh, of running the cellar at Larkmead. And I, 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 I didn't have any job prospects in New York for sales, marketing, branding, strategy uh, in the wine industry. So I was like, sure. <laughs> um, I don't know how to make wine or do anything, but uh, but he just he was he appreciated my work ethic, he appreciated my honesty and and trust, and he knew that I was going to you know kind of he could trust me with the keys for locking up the place at night because Me didn't have any full-time employee in the cellar, so I would be you know the first and only employee in the winemaking facility which was built in 05 so I started there full-time in December 06 January 07 so it's a brand new facility and I had to kind of just manage it and and also kind of learn a little bit about winemaking but Andy was a great mentor uh, during that period of time so that was you know 2006 2007 and then I you know I've been at Larkmead almost every day since and uh, I was fortunate to be named winemaker here in 2012. But during the period from 2007 to 2012, I had a lot of nostalgia and a lot of uh, uh, kind of, I started asking a lot of questions uh, about California wine, grape growing, and California wines in general. And, and my one major question, and, and Camille, you'll appreciate this because of your time spent, uh, not only in France, but your love of Italy. But when we're sitting here in, in Napa Valley at night, maybe it's seven or eight o'clock in the evening and we're sitting outside because our houses are small and we don't have air conditioning and, but it's still 75, 80 degrees out outside. I started asking myself, why are we drinking Napa Valley Cabernet when it's 80 degrees on, you know, June or July or or August night? Like, I feel like we're culturally as a community and this isn't just Napa Valley. This is, you know, nationwide. Like the, you know, the thing that I learned in living in Italy, it was you, you kinda you drank to your, your environment. I mean I always jokingly said Tawar is more about above ground than it is below ground with regards to when you're drinking wine. Mm. Like where you're drinking wine, how you're drinking wine. And and America post World War two mm. became you know this this post you know it became became an industrial nation. That was our industrial revolution when we started to make cars like crazy. We started to figure out agricultural farming and at, at a at a widespread global level where we're shipping, you know, our, ag- our agro products across the world. Like that's when we as a as a country came to who we are in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And, and that, that's also when we became a beer drinking country. And because at the end of a hot day in a factory or outside in a field, you came home and you wanted something cold and bright and fresh and bubbly. Right. And that's when, you know, the anheuser Bushes and the chorus family and the Millers, that's when everybody kind of like that's when the nation became uh, beer drinkers and uh, and wine just hasn't really caught up to it yet. So when I was sitting out in Napa Valley, thinking about why I'm drinking Napa Valley Cabernet or Sonoma County Pinot Noir, and it's a little warm out, and these wines are are beautifully fruit driven, and they they have a sense of kind of power and lusciousness and hedonism, but I was like, it just didn't feel right on the table. They weren't table wines. Where you know if you go, you work your way around Europe, you're you're confronted. In lots of restaurants with uh, table wines, very inexpensive wines that fit the, the the kind of the style of the weather that's outside, the style of the food on the table. We just haven't got there yet. So it's like the culture here in Napa and the culture in American wine drinking hasn't got there yet. We're mm-hmm. still in our infancy stages and we're still growing and we're still developing. And I think that was a big, you know, a big realization for me was that in this Mediterranean climate, which made me feel like I was back in living in Italy I was drinking completely different wines than I was there. And so a little bit of nostalgia, a little bit of romance, and I decided that I'm going to write a business plan on how to make those wines that I was drinking in Italy here in the Napa Valley. And that's how Massacon started.
0: Well, congratulations. You were voted top winemaker of the year by San Francisco Chronicle in 2017. And it's a fantastic article. It's right online. It's a great story about you and and how these wines came to be. But it, it was sort of serendipitous because they were replanting Larkmead, and then there happened to have been some Tokai Friulano in the winery, correct? In the vineyards?
1: Yeah. So we, when Larkmead kind of came, Larkmead is this old family estate that has been around for over 100 years. And for the second half of the, of the 20th century, they were predominantly grape growers selling their grapes to a, number, a bunch of other families, wineries in the Napa Valley. And when the When a generational shift happened, uh, the the daughter and her husband decided that it was the right time to kind of like maybe get into the winemaking game. They started to replant the vineyard. But there were these old vines that were on the property that they felt were um, nostalgic and historic to where the family home was. So they were still on the property, and these were these old kind of field blend, classic California sprawl, white wines, and there's, you know, seven different grape varieties in there, with the predominant one being Savignon Vert, which is the Anglicized version of uh, Tokai Frielano. And so that was like something that was, you know, this Italian, Italian family, two Italian families that owned Larkmead over the course of 125 years. And so yeah, we I've had I was exposed to this grape variety not only from my drinking days in Italy or or my drinking days in New York City, but I ended up getting exposed to it out here. And I started to think about the history of, of the Napa Valley and and it's basically just like the history of America, it's an immigrant driven community where in the late 1800s, post the 49ers, post everyone going out and searching for gold, you know the Italians, the French, and the German and everybody who didn't find gold they decided to kind of, you know, figure out a home for themselves in California, and they brought what they knew. They brought agriculture with them, and, and, and in some instances, that agriculture were grapevines. Mm-hmm. So there was, you know, the the, 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 the Berenger family, the, um, the Schramms, um, Jacob Schramm, you, now you're talking about the Germans, and you have the French and, and with billou you have the Italians with uh, the Gallows, um, then, you know, the Italians with Colony, then you have, you know, in the 60s, you have, you know, you have the Mandavis with Charles Crew, but then... You know, Robert spins off in the '60s to create Mondavi Winery. So it's a, the, the California wine industry started off the way that I described Italy and my time in Italy. It started off as uh, as you know immigrants thinking about the produce that made the table wines um, that they were accustomed to living in Europe, but it became a completely different thing, <laughs> right. and 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 so and then when it became a completely different thing in the mid '90s. And then Napa Valley in particular became a travel and tourist destination in the mid aughts. It changed to focus solely on, as you described earlier, you know, Napa Valley as a as a region committed to making these world class Cabernet Sauvignon wines and some Chardonnay. And today we have, you know, over 50% of our our vineyards in Napa Valley are planted to Cabernet. But Masakan started as its own entity with working with, um, you know, three other, four other vineyards that had Tokai Fiolano planted pre-1950. So it was a very fascinating time, um, you know, for me to kind of be doing the history of Napa Valley and learning about some of these kind of obscure grape varieties that, you know, got deemed in in, the, in around 2010 and beyond by John Bonet in his book called, you know, The New California. And I always jokingly say the New California, there's nothing new about grapes that were planted in 1946. I mean, everything old is new again. And so when I'm working with, you know, 74-year-old Tokai Friulano vines, it's weird that you would call them new or the new California, but it's kind of like postmodernism or something where we kind of look back and we're looking at the classics and we're looking at the past in order to, to kind of inform the future. And that's really where you know where I stand today with Masakan It's this, this heartstring nostalgia plus looking at a little bit of our, you know, kind of uh, immigrant culture past of Napa Valley and kind of taking those grapes and putting them in bottle.
0: It's funny how things go in cycles like that, even in – from fashion to, <laughs> to to I guess yeah. now the wine palette but uh if you're just Tuning in, you are hearing the voice of Dan Petroski, a fantastic award-winning winemaker from California, from Napa specifically. And he is the winemaker at Larkmead. Uh, and he is also the founder and owner of his own brand, uh, Massacon, which is a Mediterranean-style wine uh, based and inspired by f- the wines of Frioli, a fabulous area in the northeast part of Italy. So do you think I'm alone in, in your discoveries of what the new wine consumer is looking for? I mean, new varietals, new experiences outside of these big cabs and Chardonnays?
1: I think California has done a bad job at quality at all levels or perceived quality at all levels of price. And I think, you know, Europe has been able to kind of, kind of maximize that and, it's been that way for years. Napa Valley only makes 2.5% of all the wines sold in America. You know, they make under 6 or 7% of the wines produced in California, wow. but you, tra- you project that out, it's only 2.5% of the wines consumed. So there's, so if you think about it that way, yeah, there's always going to be an audience for what we do, but 2.5% may get squeezed As people start to think about the rest of the world and and value, and especially during a time of, you know, massive unemployment during COVID, you know, are people buying $300 bottles of wine? Are they buying $30 bottles of wine? Or are they buying $3 bottles of wine? Well, not only only that,
0: the access to other great wines at lower prices is is a little bit more out there for you in these wine stores and, and becoming a little more mainstream, maybe you could say. And before we uh, come to the conclusion of the show, I do want to know what you feel about the biodynamic and organic practices going on in Napa. I know that it's really important for the community, but I wanted to know if you feel that it's, again, something that you guys should be doing as such a healthy community in a sense that maybe you should be pioneering these practices maybe for the country. What do you think?
1: Um, I agree on your last statement there that- we have the ability to potentially be pioneers for our country. Um, we're not doing a good enough job as of yet, um, but if you think about putting us in relation to a global scale, we are, you know, online and in line with, uh, with our peers in the sense that there's only, you know, France came out with a report in late 2019 It said something like 9 to 10% of all vineyards were farmed organically. Um, you know, if you think about agriculture in general, how much percentage of agriculture in the world is farmed organically, you know, there are different, um, terms and certifications, uh, different ways people believe that organic farming is organic being organically farmed. And, you know, I just learned when I lived in Italy and I traveled around and I visited with farmers and talked about their farming practice and their wine grape growing. They lived amongst their vines. They they you walked out of their house and then said they were doing their field work and they thought it was, you know, just natural to to farm it in a way that they weren't putting anything bad into their soils or into the air that kinda of surrounds their home. And so that, you know, so biodynamic farming, not necessarily, but organic farming and the mindfulness of of a place in which you live was very important to them. And I think that is something that we haven't necessarily kind of adapted to quite yet. And I think we here in Napa Valley is a young wine grape growing region. And we got floored by phylloxera in the 1980s and early 1990s. And that caused us to kind of redevelop. But at the same time, we started redeveloping very quickly, and then we started to get a spotlight shown on the quality of the wines, and then we started to become a travel and tourist destination that we didn't really take a step back to think about what we were doing from the ground up, and that's changing. You know, as we're moving into the, you know, the you know the t- post 2010, people are starting now 2020. People are starting to think about you know what's going to be what's best for not only their soil health and their long-term profitability hey look this is this is an roi question if you plant a vineyard and it takes 3 to 4 years before you get your first crop and then you have to grow the you know then you have to make the wine bottle the wine age the wine it's like 7 years in before you start to see the return on that investment and if your vines only last for 20 or 30 years and the first three to four years, you have no production, and then the last three to four years, you have kind of like staggering, wavering production. You, you do like any coach of any major sporting league team would do. You cut the player. So when your vines are 25 years old and you're you're pulling them out of the ground, you may have only had 15 to 20 years of good production out of those vines, and then like, that's. But it's actually, you know, you spend an additional 10 years you know struggling with it and not having any production so if we could think about you know the organic matter of the soil and how that is healthy for a root system and healthy for a vine that that vine can now age another 5 or 10 years or even 20 years think of the return on that investment we don't have to have that capital expense you know twice in 50 years when you can do it once I mean like that is something that's that's something that's super powerful, but it's really hard to think that far out in the future sometimes because we're you know we're we're dealing with the day to day catch up of you know being a world class wine growing region and trying to stay on top of our game and trying to, to move the, the the ball forward, and we haven't yet as a culture thought of ourselves. We're starting to see that now as generational farmers here. Um, mm, yeah. The next generation isn't as uh, as prevalent in the Napa Valley. It's not. It's not more than 50% of who's here. There's a lot of wineries started in, uh, in, the, in the 2000 era, uh, in the 90s era. So there's not a lot of people who are passing the torch quite yet. And I think once we become generational farmers and wine grape growers and wineries, you'll start to see a lot more dedication to long-term health and planning of our, our, of our vineyards. But we have the wherewithal, we have the means, and we have the, the, the mind share and the professionalism to be the greatest grape growers in the world, um, and the healthiest and the smartest and the most return on the investment and all those things that come with leadership. So I, I it's, I'm not saying we're there yet, but, uh, I'm not giving up on the idea. You either. have
0: the ingredients. You definitely have the ingredients. Exactly.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> it is. So
0: your wines, you can get online, you can, uh, purchase them. I think that some are in the available in Massachusetts, correct? That is correct. But the the Massacon, I highly recommend everyone just just try a bottle. Just try one and taste some Italian wines from from the Napa area and be surprised, pleasantly surprised. Well, Dan, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, it's a real pleasure to speak to someone who has such a unique story and has really found his way into the soil of our of our own land and country here and really hoping to propel it into new directions forward. So thanks for all that you've done and for making some delicious juice.
1: Thank you, Camille. I appreciate you uh, having me on the show.
0: Thank you all for listening. This is Camille's Demi Hour, and I am your host, Camille Broderick. Tune in every weekend on Saturdays and Sundays at 11.30 a.m. on 89.5 WNCK. If you would like to hear this full episode or past shows, you can find me on iTunes. Cheers!